I hope you'll find your bulletin insert. We want to use these selected verses from the book of Job as our passage of Scripture today. I'm going to read with you off the sheet because I don't think I can keep up with you in my Bible. Um, And, you know, today's sermon is entitled Suffering and the Sovereignty of God. I, I don't want you to think we're going to cover everything we need to know about that in one one try, but there have been a lot of what we might call bad kinds of things happening in the world, and as we see these kinds of things happen, whether they're, they're natural catastrophes or, or wars or rumors of wars or whatever it happens to be, uh, we need to be thinking scripturally about suffering, and that's what I hope Uh, to accomplish today to help put us on that path if we're not there already. So we do want to use this as a unison reading. Let's read the Word of God together. Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. Surely I would wear it on my shoulder. I would put it on like a crown. I would give him an account of my every step. Like a prince, I would approach him. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? The Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. But I will say no more. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Will you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's, and can your voice thunder like His? Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. Of course, this is just one person's opinion. But do you know what's been called the most crippling disease in America? It's not heart problems or cancer. It's not Alzheimer's or even AIDS. 
It's the fear of litigation. Just think about how that fear changes our lives and has changed the way we live over the past 20 to 30 years. As an article in Newsweek magazine put it, slides and seesaws are disappearing from children's parks around the country because authorities are afraid of going bankrupt if the parents of an injured child sue them for negligence. Doctors order unnecessary tests for patients with the mildest of symptoms because if one in a thousand has a serious illness, the doctor could be sued. And you educators out there, of which we have many, listen to this. Teachers have stopped hugging school children for fear of being sued for sexual misconduct. Did you know that in the state of Michigan, it's illegal for any teacher to touch any child for any reason whatsoever? Can you imagine that? All because we're afraid of what might happen from a legal standpoint. And sometimes when we hear things like this, we think, well... You know, who do we have to blame for that? We have to blame the lawyers. That's what some people think, but they're ignorant when they think that. Because, you know, people like you and I, we sit on juries and sometimes award enormous sums, judgments, in favor of the plaintiffs who in many cases have hurt themselves because of their own stupidity. I think most of us have heard of the case against McDonald's several years ago where a patron sued them because they spilled their coffee on them after they had purchased it and it burned them. Who would have ever thought that a cup of coffee you just bought would be hot? (laughs) And that you should take care not to spill it. That person was awarded $2.9 million. Now granted, later it was knocked down to $640,000. But that's ridiculous. And that's why we have this fear hanging over us all of our lives, this fear of litigation. And you know from these verses that we read this morning, it seems that Americans are not not the only ones who like to go to court. Job must feel that he's been experiencing the silent treatment from God. Ever since all of those catastrophes took place in his own life, where he lost practically everything that was dear to him, including most of his family except for his wife. And then even he became ill. And he believes God's been giving him the silent treatment. And he demands that God answer him. He wants to meet him in court. Look at his words there near the end of chapter 31. Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. I mean, we don't have to be attorneys to see all the legal terminology in that verse right there. 
Job insists on his day in court in order to lay his case out before God Almighty. He just knows he's been mistreated and he wants justice. In his eyes, he has done nothing wrong. How often are you and I just like that? Our own self-righteousness leads us down the same fairy tale path. Now even though Job is misdirected in how righteous he believes himself to be, he is not wrong to bring his complaint to God. And you and I should never fail to do just that. That's the example we see in the Psalms over and over again. We see it in David's words in Psalm 13. How long, O Lord? How long will you forget me forever? We've all uttered those words at some point in time to God. That's the thing to do, to bring our complaint to God. Think of David's words in Psalm 22, words that Jesus himself quoted from the cross. My God, why have you forsaken me? Or think of Psalm 42. We find expressions in that psalm that Job himself could have written in the sense that those around this psalmist regard his sickness as evidence that God has forsaken him, much like we hear from Job's friends as we read through this entire book, friends who were supposedly there to comfort him, but I don't think they were given a whole lot of encouragement and support. The psalmist says there, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I mourn? As with a deadly wound in my body, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me continually, Where is your God? Much like what we see in the Psalms, Job's emotional words toward God are are deep down an act of true faith. Job is so sure of God's love, he's so sure of God's justice so sure of God's ultimate faithfulness that he knows God is not going to be scared away by any outburst he has in his presence. He knows it's okay for him to scream at God. Now you and I are scared by that sort of thing. If someone around us starts sobbing uncontrollably... If they're screaming out in anger, we want to get as far away from that person as we can do. But God's not like that. He can take whatever we bring to Him. You see, to question and even times doubt God can be, in essence, an act of faith because in doing so, we bring our real hearts, we bring our total selves, not just our polite Sunday selves before God and we trust God that He won't run and hide from our anger, from our pain, from anything else that we've expressed. But if we are going to yell at God, we need to know that about which we're speaking. And of course Job does not. Look at God's response there in verse 2 of chapter 38. Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Words without knowledge. Job is ignorant. 
He's been speaking without knowing. And how often do we go to God complaining about things of which we have no knowledge? But even though Job's in the wrong, even though he's ignorant and he's basically wasting God's time because he is putting himself in front of God without knowledge, God takes the time necessary to educate him about who he really is. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Who marked off its dimensions? I mean, Job, surely you know. This is beautiful literature and important theology at the same time. I don't know if you pick up the Smithsonian channel on your dish or cable package or not, but sometimes when I don't really know what I'm going to watch and I'm giving the remote a workout and flipping through the channels, I'll run across the Smithsonian channel and there's a a program on there entitled Aerial America. And it gives you a bird's eye view of different places throughout the nation. Most of the time it's on a particular state. And I don't know if they film it from an airplane or a helicopter or a blimp or what, but it's just beautifully filmed. And this particular day it was on the state of Virginia where my wife was born, so I decided to watch. And I shouldn't have said state. Virginia's a commonwealth, you know. It's not a state. And you could see so many neat old historic places because of this bird's eye view. Towns and battlefields, the University of Virginia, old historic plantations like Mount Vernon and Monticello. It was so informative and and captivating the way it was filmed and narrated. And what we need to understand is that God is doing even more with Job here in our passage He sort of gives him the aerial view, if you will, of all of creation. The oceans and skies, the storehouses of rain, sleet and snow, animals, birds, on and on we could go. Wisdom literature scholar William Brown says that God's response in these last chapters of the book of Job present the most panoramic view of creation in all of the Hebrew Bible. You see, God is making Himself known to Job. That's what's really happening in these latter chapters as we read these beautiful words. And, And after God deals with Job in such a personal way, Job can no longer justify himself. Job wanted answers, and what he received was a gift of God Himself. And the gift of God always changes us. I mean, think about as we have full trust in the will of God, as we have full trust in God's goodness, how that begins to make all the difference in the way in which suffering affects us and anything else that we have to endure in this world and this life. The psalmist says as much in Psalm 42 when he states, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. 
And we begin to see changes in Job as we continue through these latter chapters. He has learned from God's presence and he sees his need not to justify himself, but to shut his mouth in chapter 40. And then in 42, he begins to praise God. I know you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. And a few verses later, he says, So I despise myself and I repent. As someone has said, Job had to see that he was totally helpless to perform the righteousness of God apart from the life of God. It's the same principle we see in Jesus' words in Luke 9 when He says, If any man will come after me, let him do what? Deny himself. That is to say, see himself as helpless. Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily, which is the place of death toward self. Take up his cross daily and follow me. In a nutshell, that's what the Christian life is all about. And speaking of death, I hope you noticed verse 8 in chapter 40 where God said to Job, Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Those are very telling words, aren't they? Because that's exactly what God has allowed to happen. He condemned Himself in the form of His own Son, Jesus Christ, in order that you and I might be justified, might receive the gift of justification. And if you ever wonder why God allows suffering in the world, that's why. There's suffering so that in the ultimate suffering of His own Son, Jesus, you and I might be forgiven of our sins. As John Piper puts it in his book entitled Suffering and the Sovereignty of God, the ultimate reason that suffering exists in the universe is so that Christ might display the greatness of the glory of the grace of God by suffering in Himself to overcome our suffering. There can be no greater display of the glory of the grace of God than what happened at Calvary. Piper goes on to say that everything leading to the cross, everything flowing from the cross is explained by the cross, including all the suffering in the world. Suffering, according to Scripture, can do lots of good things for you and me. But one of the most important things it can do is is help us to grow spiritually. We become more dependent on God when we suffer. And as we depend on Him, we, we persevere, we stand firm in the faith regardless of what takes place around us. Hurricanes or earthquakes... We've had both this week. Diseases, illness, litigation, whatever, it makes no difference because God is real and takes up our cause in our physical lives just like He's already taken up our cause in our spiritual lives through the gift of His own Son. 
As Paul puts it to the Corinthians in his second letter, the first chapter, we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Have you ever despaired of life itself? Paul says what he was learning through that is that it made him totally throw himself on God, the one who is over death. God can handle anything that comes our way, even death, because He is the resurrection and the life. You see, when we're trying to be faithful to God and things in life don't go our way, many times our natural inclination is to complain and self-righteously claim how this cannot be happening to people like us. After all, we were trying to live the right way. We were trying to follow God's law. We were trying to be in worship every Sunday and even Sunday school. Well, that's what Job was doing. He was doing all the right things. But when these times of suffering come upon us, Paul is making the point that we should turn straight to God Himself. And Paul can say this because that's the example we have in Jesus when He was on this earth. First Peter tells us about that, the second chapter. We read, "...if when you do right and suffer for it, you take it patiently." You have God's approval. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten. But what did He do? He entrusted Himself to Him who judges justly. That's what Job finally does as we come to the end of this book, he sees his ignorance. He recognizes his sin for what it is, and he turns to God and places once again his trust in Him. May we do the same to His honor and glory. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together.